Book Fourth of the Joyful Wisdom, Part Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Joyful Wisdom by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. Book Fourth, Sanctus Januarius. 313. No Picture of a Martyr. I will take my cue from Raphael and not paint any more martyr pictures. There are enough of sublime things without being it necessary to seek sublimity where it is linked with cruelty. Moreover, my ambition was not to be gratified in the least if I aspire to be a sublime executioner. 314. New Domestic Animals I want to have my lion and my eagle about me, that I may always have hints and premonitions concerning the amount of my strength or weakness. Must I look down on them today and be afraid of them? And will the hour come once more when they will look up to me and tremble? 315. The Last Hour Storms are my danger. Shall I have my storm, in which I shall perish, just as Oliver Cromwell perished in his storm? Or shall I go out as a light does, not first blown out by the wind, but grown tired and weary of itself, a burnt-out light? Or finally, shall I blow myself out, so as not to burn out? 316. Prophetic Men Ye cannot divine how sorely prophetic men suffer. Ye think only that a fine, quote, gift, unquote, has been given to them, and would fain have it yourselves. But I will express my meaning by a simile. How much may not the animal suffer from the electricity of the atmosphere and the clouds? Some of them, as we see, have a prophetic faculty with regard to weather. For example, the apes, paren, as one can observe very well even in Europe, and not only in menageries, but at Gibraltar, in paren. But it never occurs to us that it is their sufferings that are their profits. When strong positive electricity under the influence of an approaching cloud not at all visible, is suddenly converted into negative electricity, and the alteration of the weather is imminent, these animals then behave as if an enemy were approaching them, and prepare for defence or flight. They generally hide themselves, they do not think of the bad weather as weather, but as an enemy whose hand they already feel. 317. Retrospect We seldom become conscious of the real pathos of any period of life as such, as long as we continue in it, but always think of it as the only possible and reasonable thing for us henceforth, and that it is altogether ethos and not pathos. To speak and distinguish like the Greeks. Footnote the distinction between ethos and pathos in Aristotle is, broadly, that between internal character and external circumstance. BVC. End footnote. A few notes of music today recalled a winter and a house, and a life of utter solitude to my mind, and at the same time the sentiments in which I then lived. I thought I should be able to live in such a state always, but now I understand that it was entirely pathos and passion, something comparable to this painfully bold and truly comforting music. It is not one's lot to have these sensations for years, still less eternities, otherwise one would become too, quote, ethereal, unquote, for this planet. 318. Wisdom in Pain 
In pain there is as much wisdom as in pleasure. Like the latter, it is one of the best self-preservatives of a species. Were it not so, pain would long ago have been done away with. That it is hurtful is no argument against it, for to be hurtful is its very essence. In pain I hear the commanding call of the ship's captain, Take in sail. Man, the bold seafarer, must have learned to set his sails in a thousand different ways, otherwise he could not have sailed long, for the ocean would have soon swallowed him up. We must also know how to live with reduced energy. As soon as pain gives its precautionary signal, it is time to reduce speed, some great danger, some storm is approaching, and we do well to quote, catch unquote, as little wind as possible. It is true that there are men who, on the approach of severe pain, hear the very opposite call of command, and never appear more proud, more martial, or more happy than when the storm is brewing. Indeed, pain itself provides them with their supreme moments. These are the heroic men, the great pain-bringers of mankind, those few and rare ones who need just the same apology as pain generally, and verily it should not be denied them. They are forces of the greatest importance for preserving and advancing the species, were it only because they are opposed to the smug ease and do not conceal their disgust at this kind of happiness. 319. As Interpreters of Our Experiences One form of honesty has always been lacking among founders of religions and their kin. They have never made their experiences a matter of the intellectual conscience. Quote, what did I really experience? What then took place in me and around me? Was my understanding clear enough? Was my will directly opposed to all deception of the senses and courageous in its defense against fantastic notions? End quote. None of them ever asked these questions, nor to this day do any of the good religious people ask them. They have rather a thirst for things which are contrary to reason, and they do not want to have too much difficulty in satisfying this thirst. So they experience, quote, miracles, unquote, and, quote, regenerations, unquote, and hear the voices of angels. But we who are different, who are thirsty for reason, want to look as carefully into our experiences as in the case of a scientific experiment, hour by hour, day by day. We ourselves want to be our own experiments and our own subjects of experiment. 320. On Meeting Again a. Do I quite understand you? Are you in search of something? Where, in the midst of the present, actual world, is your niche and star? Where can you lay yourself in the sun, so that you also may have a surplus of well-being, so that your existence may justify itself? Let everyone do that for himself, you seem to say. Let him put talk about generalities, concern about others and society out of his mind. B. I want more. I am no seeker. I want to create my own son for myself. 3.2.1. A new precaution. Let us no longer think so much about punishing, blaming and improving. We shall seldom be able to alter an individual, and if we should succeed in doing so, something else may also succeed, perhaps unawares. We may have been altered by him. Let us rather see to it that our own influence on all that is to come 
outweighs and overweighs his influence. Let us not struggle with direct conflict. All blaming, punishing, and desire to improve come under this category. But let us elevate ourselves all the higher. Let us ever give to our pattern more shining colours. Let us obscure the other by our light. No, we shall not mean to become darker ourselves on this account. Like all that punish and are discontented, let us rather go aside. Let us look away. 322. A simile. Those thinkers in whom all the stars move in cyclic orbits are not the most profound. He who looks into himself as into an immense universe and carries milky ways in himself knows how irregular all milky ways are. They lead into the very chaos and labyrinth of existence. 323. Happiness in Destiny Destiny confers its greatest distinction upon us when it has made us fight for a time on the side of our adversaries. We are thereby predestined to a great victory. 324. In Media Vita No, life has not deceived me. On the contrary, from year to year, I find it richer, more desirable and more mysterious. From the day on which the great liberator broke my fetters, the thought that life may be an experiment of the thinker, and not a duty, not a fatality, not a deceit. And knowledge itself may be for others something different, for example, a bed of ease or the path to a bed of ease, or an entertainment, or a course of idling. For me it is a world of dangers and victories, in which even the heroic sentiments have their arena and dance floor. Quote, Life is a means to knowledge, end quote. With this principle in one's heart, one can not only be brave, but one can even live joyfully and laugh joyfully and who could know how to laugh well and live well who did not first understand the full meaning of war and victory 325 what belongs to greatness who can attain to anything great if he does not feel the force and will in himself to inflict great pain. The ability to suffer is a small matter. In that line, weak women and even slaves often attain masterliness, but not to perish from internal distress and doubt when one inflicts great anguish and hears the cry of this anguish. That is great, that belongs to greatness. 326. Physicians of the Soul and Pain All preachers of morality, as also all theologians, have a bad habit in common. All of them try to persuade man that he is very ill, and that a severe, final, radical cure is necessary. And because mankind as a whole has for centuries listened too eagerly to those teachers, something of the superstition that the human race is in a very bad way has actually come over men. So that they are now far too ready to sigh, they find nothing more in life and make melancholy faces at each other, as if life were indeed very hard to endure. In truth, they are inordinately assured of their life and in love with it, and full of untold intrigues and subtleties for suppressing everything disagreeable and for extracting the thorn from pain and misfortune. It seems to me that people always speak with exaggeration about pain and misfortune, 
as if it were a matter of good behaviour to exaggerate here. On the other hand, people are intentionally silent in regard to a number of expedients for alleviating pain, as for instance, the deadening of it, or feverish flurry of thought, or a peaceful position, or good or bad reminiscences, intentions, hopes, also many kinds of pride and fellow-feeling which have almost the effect of anaesthetics while in the greatest degree of pain fainting takes place of itself we understand very well how to pour sweetness on our bitterness especially on the bitterness of our soul we find a remedy in our bravery and sublimity as well as in the nobler delirium of submission and resignation a loss scarcely remains a loss for an hour in some way or other a gift from heaven has always fallen into our lap at the same moment, a new form of strength, for example, be it but a new opportunity for the exercise of strength. What have the preachers of morality not dreamt concerning the inner quote, misery unquote, of evil men? What lies have they not told us about the misfortunes of impassioned men? Yes, Lying is here the right word. They were only too well aware of the overflowing happiness of this kind of man, but they kept silent as death about it, because it was a refutation of their theory, according to which happiness only originates through the annihilation of the passions and the silencing of the will. And finally, as regards the recipe of all of those physicians of the soul and their recommendation of a severe radical cure, we may be allowed to ask, is our life really painful and burdensome enough for us to exchange it with advantage for a stoical mode of life and stoical petrification? We do not feel sufficiently miserable to have to feel ill in the stoical fashion. 327. Taking Things Seriously The intellect is with most people an awkward, obscure and creaking machine, which is difficult to set in motion. They call it, quote, taking a thing seriously, unquote, when they work with this machine, and want to think well, oh, how burdensome must all good thinking be to them! That delightful animal, man, seems to lose his good humour whenever he thinks well. He becomes, quote, serious, unquote. And, quote, where there is laughing and gaiety, thinking cannot be worth anything, unquote. So speaks the prejudice of this serious animal against all, quote, joyful wisdom, unquote. Well then, let us show that it is prejudice. 328. Doing harm to stupidity. It is certain that the belief in the reprehensibility of egotism, preached with such stubbornness and conviction, has on the whole done harm to egotism, paren, in favour of the herd instinct, as I have repeated a hundred times, end paren, especially by depriving it of a good conscience, and bidding us to seek it in true source of all misfortune. Quote, thy selfishness is the bane of thy life, unquote. So rang the preaching of millenniums. It did harm, as we have said, to selfishness, and deprived it of much spirit, much cheerfulness, much ingenuity, and much beauty. It stultified and deformed and poisoned selfishness. Philosophical antiquity, on the other hand, taught that there was another principal source of evil. From Socrates downwards, the thinkers were never weary of preaching that, quote, your thoughtlessness and stupidity, your unthinking way of life according to rule, and your subjection to the opinion of your neighbour, are the reasons why you so seldom attain to happiness. 
we thinkers are, as thinkers, the happiest of mortals. Unquote. Let us not decide here whether this preaching against stupidity was more sound than the preaching against selfishness. It is certain, however, that stupidity was thereby deprived of its good conscience. These philosophers did harm to stupidity. 329. Leisure and Idleness There is an Indian savagery, a savagery peculiar to the Indian blood, in the manner in which the Americans strive after gold, and the breathless hurry of their work, the characteristic vice of the New World, already begins to infect old Europe, and makes it savage also, spreading over it a strange lack of intellectuality. One is now ashamed of repose. Even long reflection almost causes remorse of conscience. Thinking is done with a stopwatch, as dining is done with the eyes fixed on the financial newspaper. We live like men who are continually, quote, afraid of letting opportunities slip, unquote. Quote, better do anything whatever than nothing, unquote. This principle also is a noose with which all culture and all higher taste may be strangled, just as all form obviously disappears in this hurry of workers, so the sense for form itself, the ear and the eye for the melody of movement also disappear. The proof of this is the clumsy perspicuity which is now everywhere demanded in all positions where a person would like to be sincere with his fellows, and intercourse with friends, women, relatives, children, teachers, pupils, leaders and princes. One has no longer either time or energy for ceremonies, or roundabout courtesies, for any esprit in conversation, or for any otium whatever. For life in the hunt, for gaining continually, compels a person to consume his intellect, even to exhaustion, in constant dissimulation, overreaching or forestalling. The real virtue nowadays is to do something in a shorter time than another person, so that there are only rare hours of sincere intercourse permitted, in them, however, people are tired, and would not only like, quote, to let themselves go, unquote, but to stretch their legs out in an awkward style. The way people write their letters nowadays is quite in keeping with the age. Their style and spirit will always be the true, quote, sign of the times, unquote if there be still enjoyment in society and in art, it is enjoyment such as overworked slaves provide for themselves. Oh, this moderation in, quote, joy, unquote, of our cultured and uncultured classes. Oh, this increasing suspiciousness of all enjoyment. Work is winning over more and more the good conscience to its side, the desire for enjoyment already calls itself quote, need for recreation, unquote, and even begins to be ashamed of itself. Quote, One owes it to one's health, unquote, people say, when they are caught at a picnic. Indeed, it might soon go so far that one could not yield to a desire for the vita contemplativa. Paren, that is to say, excursions with thoughts and friends, unquote, without self-contempt and a bad conscience. Well, formerly it was the very reverse. It was, quote, action, unquote, that suffered from a bad conscience. A man of good family concealed his work when need compelled him to labour. A slave laboured under the weight of the feeling that he did something contemptible. The, quote, doing, unquote, itself was something contemptible. Quote, only in otium and bellum there is nobility and honour, 
so rang the voice of ancient prejudice. 330. Applause. The thinker does not need applause, nor the clapping of hands, provided he be sure of the clapping of his own hands. The latter, however, he cannot do without. Are there men who could also do without this, and in general without any kind of applause? I doubt it, and even as regards the wisest, Tacitus, who is no calumniator of the wise, says, Quando etiam sapientibus gloriae cupido novissima exuita. That means with him, never. 331. Better deaf than deafened. Formerly a person wanted to have a calling, but that no longer suffices today, for the market has become too large. There has now to be a bawling. The consequence is that even good throats outcry each other, and the best wares are offered for sale with hoarse voices. Without marketplace bawling and hoarseness, there is now no longer any genius. It is, sure enough, an evil age for the thinker. He has to learn to find his stillness betwixt two noises, and has to pretend to be deaf, until he finally becomes so. As long as he has not learned this, he is in danger of perishing from impatience and headaches. 3.3.2. The Evil Hour There has perhaps been an evil hour for every philosopher, in which he thought, What do I matter, if people should not believe my poor arguments? And then some malicious bird has flown past him and twittered, What do you matter? What do you matter? Three, three, three. What does knowing mean? Non redir, non legir, nercudistare, sed intelligentir, says Spinoza, so simply and sublimely as is his want. Nevertheless, what else is this intelligentir, ultimately? but just the form in which the three other things become perceptible to us all at once, a result of the diverging and opposing impulses of desiring to deride, lament, and extricate. Before knowledge is possible, each of these impulses must first have brought forward its one-sided view of the object or event. The struggle of these one-sided views occurs afterwards, and out of it there occasionally arises a compromise, a pacification, a recognition of rights on all three sides, a sort of justice and agreement. For in virtue of the justice and agreement, all those impulses can maintain themselves in existence and retain their mutual rights. We to whose consciousness only the closing reconciliation scenes and final settling of accounts of these long processes manifest themselves, think on that account that intelligentia is something conciliating, just and good, something essentially antithetical to the impulses, whereas it is only a certain relation of the impulses to one another. For a very long time, conscious thinking was regarded as thinking proper. It is now only that the truth dawns upon us that the greater part of our intellectual activity goes on unconsciously and unfelt by us. I believe, however, that the impulses which are here in mutual conflict understand right well how to make themselves felt by one another, and how to cause pain. The violent, sudden exhaustion which overtakes all thinkers may have had its origin here. Paren, it is the exhaustion of the battlefield. End paren. I, perhaps in our struggling interior, there is much concealed heroism, 
but certainly nothing divine, or eternally repose in itself, as Spinoza supposed. Conscious thinking, and especially that of the philosopher, is the weakest, and on that account also the relatively mildest and quietest mode of thinking. It is thus, it is precisely the philosopher who is the most easily misled concerning the nature of knowledge. 3.3.4. One must learn to love. This is our experience in music. We must first learn, in general, to hear to hear fully, and to distinguish a theme or a melody. We have to isolate and limit it as a life by itself. Then, we need to exercise effort and goodwill in order to endure it in spite of its strangeness. We need patience towards its aspect and expression and indulgence towards what is odd in it. In the end, there comes a moment when we are accustomed to it, when we expect it, when it dawns upon us, that we should miss it if it were lacking, and then it goes on to exercise its spell and charm more and more, and does not cease until we have become its humble and enraptured lovers, who want it, and want it again, and ask for nothing better from the world. It is thus with us, however, not only in music. It is precisely thus that we have learned to love all things that we now love. We are always finally recompensed for our goodwill, our patience, reasonableness and gentleness towards what is unfamiliar, by the unfamiliar slowly throwing off its veil and presenting itself to us as a new, ineffable beauty. That is its thanks for our hospitality. He also who loves himself must have learned it in this way. There is no other way. Love also has to be learned. 3.3.5 Cheers for physics. How many men are there who know how to observe? And among the few who do know, how many observe themselves? Quote, Everyone is furthest from himself. Unquote. All the quote, triers of the reins know that to their discomfort, and the saying, quote, Know thyself unquote, in the mouth of a god and spoken to man is almost a mockery. But that the case of self observation is so desperate as attested best of all by the manner in which almost everybody talks of the nature of a moral action, that prompt, willing, convinced, loquacious manner, with the look, the smile, and its pleasing eagerness. Everyone seems inclined to say to you, quote, Why, my dear sir, that is precisely my affair. You address yourself with your question to him who is authorized to answer. For I happened to be wiser with regard to this matter than in anything else. Therefore, when a man decides that this is right, when he accordingly concludes that it must therefore be done, and thereupon does what he has thus recognized as right and designated as necessary, then the nature of his action is moral. Unquote. But, my friend, you are talking to me about three actions instead of one. Your deciding, for instance, that quote, this is right unquote, is also an action. Could one not judge either morally or immorally? Why do you regard this and just this as right? Quote, because my conscience tells me so. Conscience never speaks immorally. Indeed, it determines in the first place what shall be moral. Unquote. But why do you listen to the voice of your conscience? And in how far are you justified in regarding such a judgment as true and infallible? 
this belief. Is there no further conscience for it? Do you know nothing of an intellectual conscience? A conscience behind your, quote, conscience, unquote? Your decision, quote, this is right, unquote, has a previous history in your impulses, your likes and dislikes, your experience and non-experiences. Quote, how has this originated? Unquote. You must ask. And afterwards, the further question, quote, what really impels me to give ear to it? Unquote. You can listen to its command, like a brave soldier who hears the command of his officer, or like a woman who loves him who commands, or like a flatterer and coward, afraid of the commander, or like a blockhead who follows because he has nothing to say to the contrary. In short, you can give ear to your conscience in a hundred different ways. But that you hear this or that judgment as the voice of conscience, consequently that you feel a thing to be right, may have its cause in the fact that you have never reflected about yourself, and have blindly accepted from your childhood what has been designated to you as right or in the fact that hitherto bread and honours have fallen to your share with that which you have called your duty, it is, quote, right, unquote, to you, because it seems to be your, quote, condition of existence, unquote. Paren, that you, however, have a right to existence, appears to you as irrefutable, end paren. The persistency of your moral judgment might still be just a proof of personal wretchedness or impersonality. Your quote, moral force unquote, might have its source in your obstinacy or in your incapacity to perceive new ideals. And to be brief, if you had thought more acutely, observed more accurately, and have learned more, you would no longer, under all circumstances, call this or that your quote, duty unquote, and your quote, conscience. Unquote. The knowledge how moral judgments have in general always originated would make you tired of these pathetic words. As you have already grown tired of other pathetic words, for instance, quote, sin. Unquote, quote, salvation, unquote, and quote, redemption. Unquote. And now, my friends, do not talk to me about the categorical imperative. That word tickles my ear, and I must laugh in spite of your presence and your seriousness. In this connection, I recollect old Kant who, as punishment for having gained possession surreptitiously of the, quote, thing in itself, unquote, also a very ludicrous affair, was imposed upon by the categorical imperative, and with that in his heart, strayed back again to, quote, God, unquote, the, quote, soul, unquote, quote, freedom, Unquote, and quote, immorality, unquote, like a fox which strays back to its cage, and it has been his strength and shrewdness which had broken open his cage. What? You admire the categorical imperative in you? This quote, persistency unquote, of your so called moral judgment? This absoluteness of the feeling that, quote, as I think on this matter, so must everyone think, unquote. Admire, rather, your selfishness therein, and the blindness, paltriness, and modesty of your selfishness. For it is selfishness in a person to regard his judgment as universal law and as a blind, 
paltry and modest selfishness besides, because it betrays that you have not yet discovered yourself, that you have not yet created for yourself any individual, quite individual ideal. For this could never be the ideal of another, to say nothing of all, of everyone. He who still thinks that, quote, each would have to act in this manner in this case, unquote, has not yet advanced half a dozen paces in self-knowledge. Otherwise, he would know that there neither are nor can be similar actions. Every action that has been done has been done in an entirely unique and inimitable manner, and that it will be the same with regard to all future actions, that all precepts of conduct, paren, and even the most esoteric and subtle precepts of all moralities up to the present, in paren, apply only to this coarse exterior, that by means of them, indeed, a semblance of equality can be attained, but only a semblance, that in outlook or retrospect every action is and remains an impenetrable affair, that our opinions of quote, good, unquote, quote, noble, unquote, and quote, great, unquote, can never be demonstrated by our actions, because no action is cognizable that our opinions, estimates, and tables of values are certainly among the most powerful levers in the mechanism of our actions, that in every single case, nevertheless, the law of their mechanism is untraceable. Let us confine ourselves, therefore, to the purification of our opinions and appreciations, and to the construction of new tables of values of our own. We will, however, brood no longer over the quote, moral worth of our actions. Unquote. Yes, my friends, as regards the whole moral twaddle of people about one another, it is time to be disgusted with it. To sit in judgment morally ought to be opposed to our taste. Let us leave this nonsense and this bad taste to those who have nothing else to do, save to drag the past a little distance further through time, and who are never themselves the present, consequently to the many, to the majority. We, however, would seek to become what we are, the new, the unique, the incomparable, making laws for ourselves and creating ourselves. For this purpose we must become the best students and discoverers of all the laws and necessities in the world. We must be physicists, in order to be creators in that sense. Whereas hitherto all appreciations and ideals have been based on ignorance of physics, or in contradiction to it, and therefore three cheers for physics, and still louder cheers for that which impels us to it, our honesty. 336. Avarice of Nature Why has nature been so niggardly towards humanity that she has not let human beings shine, this man more, and that man less, according to their inner abundance of light. Why have not great men such a fine visibility in their rising and setting as the sun? How much less equivocal would life among men then be? 337. Future, quote, humanity, unquote. When I look at this age with the eye of a distant future, I find nothing so remarkable in the man of the present day as his peculiar virtue and sickness called, quote, the historical sense, unquote. 
It is a tendency to something quite new and foreign in history. If this embryo were given several centuries and more, there might finally evolve out of it a marvellous plant, with a fine smell equally marvellous, on account of which our old earth might be more pleasant to live in than it has been hitherto. We moderns are just beginning to form the chain of a very powerful future sentiment, link by link. We hardly know what we are doing. It almost seems to us as if it were not the question of a new sentiment, but of the decline of all old sentiments. The historical sense is still something so poor and cold, and many are attacked by it as a frost, and are made poorer and colder by it. To others it appears as an indication of stealthy approaching age and our planet is regarded by them as a melancholy invalid, who, in order to forget his present condition, writes the history of his youth. In fact, this is one aspect of the new sentiment. He who knows how to regard the history of man in its entirety as his own history feels the immense generalization of all the grief of the invalid who thinks of health, of the old man who thinks of the dream of his youth, of the lover who is robbed of his beloved, of the martyr whose ideal is destroyed, of the hero on the evening of the indecisive battle which has brought him wounds and the loss of a friend. But to bear this immense sum of grief of all kinds, to be able to bear it, and yet still be the hero who at the commencement of a second day of battle greets the dawn and his happiness as one who has a horizon of centuries before and behind him, as the heir of all nobility, of all past intellect, and the obligatory heir, paren, as the noblest, unquote, of all the old nobles, while at the same time the first of a new nobility, the equal of which has never been seen nor even dreamed of, to take all this upon his soul, the oldest, the newest, the losses, hopes, conquests, the victories of mankind, to have all this at last in one soul, and to comprise it in one feeling, this would necessarily furnish a happiness which man has not hitherto known, a God's happiness, full of power and love, full of tears and laughter, a happiness which, like the sun in the evening, continually gives of its inexhaustible riches and empties into the sea, and, like the sun, too, feels itself richest, when even the poorest fisherman rows with golden oars, this divine feeling might then be called humanity. 338. The Will to Suffering and the Compassionate Is it to your advantage to be above all compassionate? And is it to the advantage of the sufferers when you are so? But let us leave the first question for a moment without an answer. That from which we suffer most profoundly and personally is almost incomprehensible and inaccessible to everyone else. In this matter we are hidden from our neighbour, even when he eats at the same table with us. Everywhere, however, where we are noticed as sufferers, our suffering is interpreted in a shallow way. It belongs to the nature of the emotion of pity to divest unfamiliar suffering of its properly personal character. Our quote, benefactors unquote, lower our value and volition more than our enemies. In most benefits which are conferred on the unfortunate, there is something shocking in the intellectual levity with which the compassionate person plays the role of fate. He knows nothing 
of all the inner consequences and complications which are called misfortune for me or for you the entire economy of my soul and its adjustments by quote, misfortune unquote, the uprising of new sources and needs the closing up of old wounds the repudiation of whole periods of the past none of these things which may be connected with misfortune preoccupy the dear sympathizer he wishes to succour and does not reflect that there is a personal necessity for misfortune that terror want impoverishment midnight watches adventures hazards and mistakes are as necessary to me and to you as their opposites yea that to speak mystically the path to one's own heaven always leads through the voluptuousness of one's own hell no he knows nothing thereof the quote, religion of compassion unquote, paren, or quote, the heart end quote, end paren, bids him help and he thinks that he has helped best when he has helped most speedily if your adherents of this religion actually had the same sentiment towards yourselves which you have towards your fellows if you are unwilling to endure your own suffering even for an hour and continually forestall all possible misfortune if you regard suffering and pain generally as evil detestable and deserving of annihilation and as blots on existence well you have then besides your religion of compassion yet another religion in your heart paren and this is perhaps the mother of the former in paren the religion of smug ease ah how little you know of the happiness of man you comfortable and good-natured ones for happiness and misfortune are brother and sister and twins who grow tall together or as with you remain small together but now let us return to the first question how is it at all possible for a person to keep to his path some cry or other is continually calling one aside our eye then rarely lights on anything without it becoming necessary for us to leave for a moment our own affairs and rush to give assistance i know there are hundreds of respectable and laudable methods for making me stray from my course and in truth the most quote, moral unquote, of methods indeed the opinion of the present-day preachers of the morality of compassion goes so far as to imply that just this and this alone is moral to stray from our course to that extent and to run to the assistance of our neighbour i am equally certain that i need only give myself over to the sight of one case of actual distress and i too am lost and if a suffering friend said to me quote, see i shall soon die only promise to die with me End quote. i might promise it just as to select for once bad examples for good reasons the sight of a small mountain people struggling for freedom would bring me to the point of offering them my hand and my life indeed there is even a secret seduction in all this awakening of compassion and calling for help our quote, own way unquote, is a thing too hard and insistent and too far removed from the love and gratitude of others we escape from it and from our most personal conscience not at all unwillingly and seek security in the conscience of others we take refuge in the lovely temple of the quote, religion of pity unquote. as soon now as any war breaks out there always breaks out at the same time a certain secret delight precisely in the noblest class of people they rush with rapture to meet the new danger of death 
because they believe that in the sacrifice for their country they have finally that long-sought-for permission, the permission to shirk their aim. War is for them a detour to suicide, a detour, however, with a good conscience. And although silent here about some things, I will not, however, be silent about my morality, which says to me, Live in concealment in order that thou mayest live to thyself. Live ignorant of that which seems to thy age to be the most important. Put at least the skin of three centuries betwixt thyself and the present day. And the clamour of the present day, the noise of the wars and revolutions, ought to be a murmur to thee. Thou wilt also want to help, but only those whose distress thou entirely understandest, because they have one sorrow and one hope in common with thee, thy friends, and only the way that thou helpest thyself. I want to make them more courageous, more enduring, more simple, more joyful. I want to teach them that which at present so few understand, and the preachers of fellowship in sorrow least of all, namely, fellowship in joy. 339. Vita Femina To see the ultimate beauties in a work, all knowledge and goodwill is not enough. It requires the rarest good chance for the veil of clouds to move for once from the summits, and for the sun to shine on them. We must not only stand at precisely the right place to see this, our very soul itself must have pulled away the veil from its heights, and must be in need of an external expression and simile, so as to have a support and remain master of itself. All these, however, are so rarely united at the same time, that I am inclined to believe that the highest summits of all that is good, be it work, deed, man, or nature, has hitherto remained for most people, and even for the best, as something concealed and shrouded. That, however, which unveils itself to us, unveils itself to us but once. The Greeks indeed prayed, quote, twice and thrice everything beautiful, unquote. Ah, they had their good reason to call on the gods, for ungodly actuality does not furnish us with the beautiful at all, or only does so once. I mean to say that the world is overfull of beautiful things, but it is nevertheless poor, very poor, in beautiful moments, and in the unveiling of those beautiful things. But perhaps this is the greatest charm of life. It puts a gold-embroidered veil of lovely potentialities over itself, promising, resisting, modest, mocking, sympathetic, seductive. Yes, life is a woman. 340 the dying Socrates. I admire the courage and wisdom of Socrates in all that he did, said, and did not say. This mocking and amorous demon and rat-catcher of Athens, who made the most insolent youths tremble and sob, was not only the wisest babbler that ever lived, but was just as great in his silence. I would that he had also remained silent in the last moment of his life. Perhaps he might then have belonged to a still higher order of intellects. Whether it was death, or the poison, or piety, or wickedness, something or other loosened his tongue at that moment, and he said, quote, O Crito, I owe a cock to Asclepios. End quote. For him who has ears, this ludicrous and terrible quote, last word unquote, implies 
Quote, o Crito, life is a long sickness. End quote. Is it possible? A man like him, who had lived cheerfully and to all appearances as a soldier, was a pessimist? He had merely put on a good demeanour towards life, and had all along concealed his ultimate judgment, his profoundest sentiment. Socrates. Socrates had suffered from life. And he also took his revenge for it, with that veiled, fearful, pious and blasphemous phrase. Had even a Socrates to revenge himself? Was there a grain too little of magnanimity in his superabundant virtue? Ah, my friends, we must surpass even the Greeks. 341. The Heaviest Burden What if a demon crept after thee into thy loneliest loneliness some day or night, and said to thee, This life, as thou lived it at present, and has lived it, thou must live it once more, and also innumerable times. There will be nothing new in it, but every pain, and every joy, and every thought, and every sigh, and all the unspeakably small and great in thy life must come to thee again, and all in the same series and sequence, and similarly this spider and this moonlight among the trees, and similarly this moment and I myself, the eternal sunglass of existence will ever be turned once more, and thou with it, thou speck of dust. Wouldst thou not throw thyself down, and gnash thy teeth, and curse the demon who that so spake? Or hast thou once experienced a tremendous moment in which thou wouldst answer him? Thou art a god, and never did I hear aught more divine. If that thought acquired power over thee, as thou art, it would transform thee, and perhaps crush thee. The question with regard to all and everything, dost thou want this once more, and also for innumerable times, would lie as the heaviest burden upon thy activity? Or how wouldst thou have to become favourably inclined to thyself and to life, so as to long for nothing more ardently than for this last eternal sanctioning and sealing? 3.4.2 Insipid Tragedia when Zarathustra was thirty years old, he left his home and the lake of Urmi and went into the mountains. There he enjoyed his spirit and his solitude, and for ten years did not weary of it. But at last his heart changed, and rising one morning with a rosy dawn, he went before the sun and spake thus unto it, Thou great star! What would be thy happiness, if thou had not those for whom thou shinest? For ten years hast thou climbed hither unto my cave. Thou wouldst have wearied of thy light, and of thy journey, had it not been for me, mine eagle, and my serpent. But we awaited thee every morning and took from thee thy overflow, and blessed thee for it. Lo, I am weary of my wisdom, like the bee that has gathered too much honey. I need hands outstretched to take it. I would fain bestow and distribute, 
until the wise have once more become joyous in their folly, and the poor happy in their riches. Therefore must I descend into the deep, as thou doest in the evening, when thou goest behind the sea, and givest light also to the netherworld, thou most rich star. Like thee must I go down, as men say, to whom I shall descend. Bless me then, thou tranquil eye, that canst behold even the greatest happiness without envy. Bless the cup that is about to overflow, that the water may flow golden out of it, and carry everywhere the reflection of thy bliss. Lo, this cup is again going to empty itself, and Zarathustra is again going to be a man. Thus began Zarathustra's downgoing. End of Book Fourth, Part Two